think where there is maybe often, not always, but often a, a distinct difference between a, a social worker's empathic brain and a designer's like path to empathy, how can a social worker help evolve a transactional process and make it one that's much more relational? And one of the ways to do that is that, is that you have to slow down the process. Welcome to Design Lab. I'm Bon Koo. On today's episode, we're going to talk about trauma responsive design, and our guest is Rachel Dekas. Rachel is a clinical social worker who has dedicated her career to trauma responsive practices in design. After 10 years of working with social justice and human rights nonprofits, Rachel pursued her master's of social work and work at the Veterans Affairs. Now she's at the University of Illinois at Urbana-Champaign, where she's the assistant dean at the School of Social Work and the associate director of programs at the new Sybil Center for Design. I really enjoyed my conversation with Rachel. We talk about how design and social work fit together, why designers should think more like social workers, and about her journey of developing the field of trauma-responsive design. Rachel also gives advice to those of us who are struggling with our own trauma during this pandemic. Thank you for everyone who has reached out, like Gray Kadorov and Michael Brenner from London. I appreciate the Twitter love. And please support this podcast by simply subscribing, rating, and leaving feedback. This really helps others to find us. Now here's my conversation with Rachel Dekas. Rachel, thanks for being on Design Lab. You are a social worker who uses design in your practice. Yes. How does design and social work fit together? Oh, I think they fit together in so many different ways. Maybe an origin point for me was being a young activist in high school and then throughout college, but then starting out as an art and design student here at the University of Illinois. And and failing miserably as an art and design student, and then finding this pathway within sociology and social justice causes, but Mm -hmm. always having this interest still in the designed world and like the graphic element of things. And so for me, it's been this, it's been this 20 plus 25 year journey of just trying to find these ways of integrating disciplines like design and this umbrella discipline of design with social work, which is, you know, I identify strongly as a social worker, but also as a designer. For those listening who don't understand what a social worker does, can you describe what a social worker does? And we use social workers a lot in the emergency room where I work at. And sometimes I think we think that social workers have superpowers of like, can you find this person who's homeless housing and this person who has uh, substance use disorders? Can you get them into rehab at two o'clock in the morning? So describe maybe a little bit of what a social worker actually does. You know, a tried and true social worker is someone who has gone to school and gotten either a bachelor's in social work from a four-year institution and or a master's in social work, which is typically, uh, could be a one or a two-year program, depending on where you are. And 
and social workers are trained to understand and work with people in their environment. And so it's much more of a holistic approach of understanding not just the the mind of someone, but also what has their life experience and life journey been and how has that maybe impacted them over the years? How has that maybe contributed to some challenges or barriers to just overall well-being and livelihood? So social workers, uh, they, they do a lot of different things. I mean, there are like well over half a million social workers and licensed social workers just in the mm-hmm. United States, several million around the world. And I, I think for me, I, I like to share that about 20 years ago, I had a very limited understanding of what social workers were and what they did. And I, I remember a fellow college student, she was also a sociology major, and she said, have you ever thought about social work? And I had this immediate guttural reaction of like, oh my God, no, I never want to be a social worker. And for me, 20 years ago, I had this limited understanding of what social workers did. I, I just, I, I had this very cliche child welfare sort of like image mm. of what they did. And that's, that is a piece of what they do. But social workers are often working within fairly complex systems and with very complex individuals or groups or communities or organizations. So I think the, I think the the power of what social workers can do is uh, is actually quite varied. You know, you mentioned mm-hmm. healthcare and the hospital experience. Just you know, from my own experience working in veterans affairs, mm-hmm. there were easily close to a hundred social workers at just the hospital that I worked mm-hmm. at, which is a fairly small rural hospital. Mm-hmm. And so the the variety of what a social worker can do is really vast. Do you think that designers should think more like social workers? <laughs> I mean, yes, I'm quite biased when I say that, though. (laughs) But I also think that social workers should think like designers. And I mean, I'd like to... Yeah, tell me more about that. Yeah, I mean, I... I, I have to say, when I, I had this chance encounter with a designer back when I was working on my MSW, this was in, I believe it was the summer of 2009, and I met this woman, uh, she was a local designer at the time, and she had started this organization called the Champagne Urbana Design Org, and we literally had this serendipitous chance meeting at a farm-to-table dinner, and within a number of minutes, we discovered we shared a birthday. I had this affinity for design and she was a designer and she was trying to find someone who knew the local nonprofit landscape. And just within this, like this, the spark of a conversation, we realized like we need each other in order to do some of the things that we want to do. And I think the the power and the ability for social workers and designers to intersect and to really have this shared respect and trust of each other's discipline and either training, whether it's uh, on your own or your professional training, is actually something that can be quite powerful when it's actually like synergistic and it's coming together. So I've seen and I felt the power of that. And I've only, you know, especially over the past decade, have just sought out and try to keep my antenna up for those opportunities. You know, I've I'd say probably one of the most explicit examples of where, aside from the one with with Maya Bruck, who was a designer I was referring to, was working with an engineer when I was at the VA and working mm-hmm. on construction projects. And for for two individuals to have such very different backgrounds and training, 
we synced in a way that I have yet to experience with another discipline before. Mm -hmm. And so I think some of it definitely comes down to the individual and maybe where that person is in their career trajectory, their background, their personality, all these other factors that we definitely sometimes take for granted. This one particular project was a healthcare for homeless veterans project where Mm -hmm. we needed to include the very individual that we were going to be serving in that. And I think they would have done that without me, but I think that there is a a different kind of a depth that I was able to add because of my being a social worker. One common thread I see with social workers and designers is their ability to empathize with people. Social workers are some of the most empathetic people that I know. They take into consideration of all these different factors from trauma to the person's environment to their job, their family dynamics, and they'd really take this holistic approach to the person. And, but I think there's an argument to me that designers should think more like social workers because so much of design historically has been around making better products or services for commercialization, but social workers about social change. Mm-hmm. Do you have thoughts on that? I think where there is maybe often, not always, but often a a distinct difference between a a social worker's empathic brain and a designer's like path to empathy is that social workers are, there's an intrinsic motivation to want to help other Mm -hmm. individuals. And so it can come from really wanting to work with that individual and the environment and whatever that current uh, time and place of suffering may be, may be manifesting. And so I, I think of it as much more of a relational empathy as opposed to maybe a transactional empathy. Mm-hmm. And I think that's something that designers are, are really, they're calling out themselves and they're saying that what we do can sometimes be manipulative and can sometimes mm-hmm. be like exploiting individuals just to try to get source material or to try to get like the story so that mm-hmm. we can, you know, better design. And so I, I think about how can a social worker help evolve a transactional process and make it one that's much more relational? And one of the ways that to do that is that, is that you have to slow down the process. You have to slow mm-hmm. it down. You have to take into consideration other things. You have to ask different questions. You have to allow space for there to be pause and silence. And, you know, sometimes I see that and sometimes I don't. Mm-hmm. And I've heard so many stories from designers about how they feel that they have, they have, they always thought that they were an, an empathic person and they realized that, that they weren't in mm-hmm. the process, like earlier in their career, or that if they really want to better understand a person and the system and who they are designing for, that they actually have to include them in the process. So they need to design with and not for. And it's exciting to see designers getting into more social causes and social activism. I'm a huge fan of IDEO.org, which is a spinoff of IDEO led by Jocelyn Wyatt. They're committed to you know, creating a more just and inclusive world. And there is more of a social conscious, it seems, in the design community around using human-centered design for improving social causes. And so, yeah, so hopefully we'll see some more of that. And I love this intersection between social work and design. 
You are a kind of trauma expert in social work, right? Tell me about this intersection between trauma awareness and design. Yeah, so I, a lot of this, a lot of my understanding and my work and my research in in trauma-informed design or trauma-sensitive, trauma-conscious design. I'm starting to play around with this, this phrasing of like trauma-responsive design. Like what, is, what does it actually mean to be trauma-responsive as opposed to just trauma-informed? And I- I, I like that much better, <laughs> trauma-responsive design. It's, it, more, it's more active. It, it's much more active. I, I had a feeling that that might resonate with you, especially as a physician and working within health systems and with this intersection of design. I, 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 I don't want to say I stumbled upon this work, but I think, I think some of it was a natural evolution of really f- seeing where there may be gaps in the, the human-centered design process and in the design research process. And what do those gaps mean? And what do they mean like academically and from a, a scholar's perspective? But then also like, how are those gaps making me feel as, a, as an individual and as a social worker? Mm. And so I've, I wanted to have a, I really just started paying attention more to how is my mind and body responding to things when they are maybe like a little off kilter. And it was, it was sort of a thread that I knew was, was going to be coming with this intersection of social work and design, but it was really, I I think the, the thing that really immediately resonated with me was coming across this, this journal article about how when designers are working within human-centered design, that they can often, the, the process can mimic psychotherapy. And mm. there's a you know, faculty member um, at, from Northeastern, Tad Hirsch, who talked about how this is really problematic. And this is, uh, this is an ethical issue within the field of design. And he really called on this idea of of designers need to work more with counselors and clinicians and people who actually are licensed. And so it it really got me thinking like, well, what does that mean to be trauma-informed? And what does it mean for me to be like trauma-informed? Because as a social worker and in, in my actual like academic training and preparation, I didn't take one single class on trauma. I, I'm sure there was mention of trauma and it, maybe it was more often than not much more implied in both the explicit and implicit curriculum, but it wasn't, it's not like I had a class that was like trauma 101 and, mm-hmm. and we knew how to do it. It wasn't until I learned, until I actually became a practicing social worker in the federal government where I I learned on the job, like what it meant to experience trauma, to witness someone else's trauma, to really understand what does like secondary or vicarious trauma, what does that mean for me as a social worker, mm-hmm. that I started doing a much more like, like self-learning and education on this. And the, the opportunity, I think, within design is that in so many of these conversations, especially within human-centered design and talking with, you know, colleagues and peers like George I, who say, you know, like the, like the systems are oppressive and these systems are often traumatized themselves and they've been built by traumatized individuals. So, of course, the very people who are going to be utilizing them are going to experience some form of trauma. It, may, it might not be acute and immediately aware, but it's there. And how do we address that? So it's, it's, I feel like it's going to be a continuous lifelong journey of understanding and uncovering this. Like, what does it mean to me like individually? And what Mm. does it mean to me as a social worker and designer contributing to these fields? Mm. 
I love that you know George I of Greater Good Studio based in Chicago who's on a previous episode. I'm a huge fan of his. Same and here. I, <laughs> yeah. I heard you quote the social worker Menachem. Is that his name? Yep, Resma. Mm-hmm. Resma Menachem on the definition of trauma. And I I have not heard of this before. He says trauma is not primarily an emotional response. Trauma always happens in the body. It is a spontaneous protective mechanism used by the body to stop or thwart further or future potential damage. Trauma is not a flaw or a weakness. It is a highly effective tool of safety and survival. That blew me away that I think when we think of trauma, often we think of it as weakness in us. Why did you choose this definition of trauma when you were asked to define what trauma is? Mm, oh, that's a great question. I I think I'm I definitely have an affinity uh, towards Resma and his work, and he he talks a lot about generational trauma and racialized trauma, community mm-hmm. trauma. You know, he's a, he's a social worker, and he you know, he's been practicing for you know nearly thirty years, and and served, he, he was a social worker overseas, like with combat mm. veterans. And so there's, I feel some sort of a kinship with him uh, from, a, from a disciplinary perspective. But also when I first came across that definition, it felt authentic and it mm. felt it felt genuine. It didn't feel like the DSM, you know, the Diagnostic you know, Statistical Manual and, yeah. and very clinically driven. It, it, it resonated with me both emotionally, but also like with, within my body, just even hearing you, hearing you re-say it, there's a somatic response that we have when we sometimes hear these things. So I think, you know, that one, I, I feel like that breaks down and makes the definition and the understanding of trauma a bit more accessible to people who might not understand what it means, or they, maybe they have experienced either big T or little t trauma, but they aren't sure what that what that really means in the context of like what others have experienced. Can you explain this difference between big T and little t trauma? Yeah. So big T trauma, you know, an example of a big T trauma would be like a natural, you know, a, a, a natural disaster. So like a hurricane or a war. Or um, the uh, pandemic of 2020. Or the pandemic, <laughs> the entire year of 2020 <laughs> is its own, like the, the Trump presidency. I mean, they're, they're, yes. they're like big kind of, I don't want to say out of our control, but, you know, somewhat out of our control, but sometimes like truly out of our control, like big events. Mm-hmm. And then little t trauma could be, could be something like maybe emotional abuse as a child. I would say even sometimes maybe just a, a toxic work environment could be like, could manifest and evolve into you know little t trauma yeah the one of the one of the things that i that i really like is that in this research and work that i do within trauma is that a lot of people have experienced some form of trauma so whether it's big t or little t trauma but not everyone will be traumatized and mm. i think that's that's it's an important thing to know and you know something that could happen to me may you know may not impact me in the same way as someone else. And that comes from a, a wide variety of factors. Could be my, my DNA, it could be my upbringing, could be my like earned and unearned privileges in life. A, a number of things like really can impact that. What do you think 
Resma means when he says trauma always happens in the body because we're not talking about like physical violent trauma, right? He, yeah, we're talking about all like big T trauma, little T trauma. Yeah. What does that mean? It always happens in the body. It's the it's that physical and and sometimes emotional and sometimes psychological response, and those are things that are happening, like that are encapsulated in our body, and how that moves through us. I, I had a recent exchange with Resma and I, I was feeling compelled to to write him and to just thank him for his work and his his words and his wisdom and just for continuing to like, talk about these really hard and difficult things. And I shared a little bit that I, I, you know, I'm working within this realm of trauma-informed design and his response to me, and this is one of the reasons why I'm thinking about trauma-responsive design, is he, and he phrased it so succinctly, he said, what if you considered designing from a trauma responsive position. He said, mm. just let that sit, let it sit in your body, let it marinate before you take any action. And just, you know, really reading his words and taking that in and really letting it, you know, like he said, just like marinate, you know, I mean, that I could write about that. I could also just like think about that and, and sort of ponder like, what is that possibility? And I think that that processing is something that is happening like internal. It mm -hmm. may have some external outputs or some external responses, but that's all internal from both the, you know, our 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 very our nervous system. It plays a central part in how we mm -hmm. react and how we respond to trauma. I see that in a lot of my patients mm -hmm. of the physical manifestations of trauma. You started the social workers who design. Can you tell me a little bit more about that and maybe give some specific examples of the role of design in trauma responsive care? <laughs> yeah. So I, I, I knew I wasn't the only social worker out there who was working within design. And I knew I wasn't the only social worker who had an interest in design, whether it's human-centered design or user design, user experience design. And so I really wanted to just better better synthesize and I really, I guess, like formulate a platform where where we where other social workers can find each other for one, but also where designers who have this interest within including social workers within their work or their projects where we could really just find one another. And I think a big piece of that was having that opportunity to speak at at the restorative design conference that George and Sarah hosted with Greater Good mm -hmm. Studio. And the the number of people who reached out to me like during that conference and then immediately after and then in the weeks that that followed were social workers and mm. other clinicians and other professionals, a number of designers who talked about, you know, I always felt like we were missing something, but I wasn't sure what. Mm. There, was, there was also a few dozen, I mean, like a few dozen designers who just shared with me very openly that they, they are in recovery from their mm. own trauma mm. and and they never really thought about how their own trauma might have been influencing or impacting their work whatever mm. their work might have been mm. and it just it just made me thinking there there we have to find a way to 
to make sure that we are um, one finding one another from like discipline to discipline, but then also really finding meaningful ways to actually work together. I'm a huge proponent of participatory design and co-design. And really, I, I love that idea and just the follow through of really, like I shared with the VA experience of just truly having this fully like respected cooperative type of collaboration with one another. When I think of examples, I can't help but think about the pandemic. You know, we're all mm-hmm. like still currently very much living in it. And where I work at Siebel Center for Design at the University of Illinois, we had an opportunity to be part of a project that ended up being called Illinois Rapid Event back in March, which within a week's less than a week's time, a, a team of about 40 of us prototyped a working ventilator. And the number of people that our small team within Siebel Center for Design just interviewing so many different healthcare professionals, one including my husband, who's a a rapid response nurse at our Mm. local hospital, and just really tuning into the the worry and the concern and the, the real, like, lived fear that they had about what this pandemic and how it was going to maybe like manifest in the months to come, how it was going to impact both patients, how it was going to impact them individually and how it's going to impact their, their families. And I think, I think living through that experience and working on that, it felt like just like a rapid, like hackathon, virtual hackathon mm-hmm. really like, tuned me in better to understand like what are the different kinds of trauma within some of these systems? Some of these systems, as you know, I'm sure are, are, are traumatic to even work within, mm-hmm. even for us as employees, but also like if they're traumatic for us, they're probably traumatic for our patients <laughs> yeah. and for our students. <laughs> the, uh, yeah, this whole pandemic working in the emergency room has been a traumatic experience. Not that I'm always traumatized when I go into work. So I like that distinction, but it is, big T trauma that we are experiencing. Do you feel that trauma during this pandemic has been underrecognized? I feel like it's been, I don't feel like it's been underrecognized. I feel like it's been acknowledged. I don't know if it's fully understood though. What do you mean by that? I I think of, I'll start with the micro because we you know, we always know ourselves the best, right? And so for me, I'm a working parent of a nine-year-old that we're homeschooling, and I have a spouse who works in healthcare and is in is in the thick of COVID every time he works. Mm-hmm. So that's my every day. And if I work within a system, if just, you know, if I look at myself and if I work within a system and I don't have any other colleagues who are parents of young children, there's an isolation that can occur, mm-hmm. even though we might be experiencing these kind of like big big life events. And then what is that? It kind of gets to like, what does it mean to actually be like empathic and understand someone else's plight or someone else's situation? I've heard a lot about collective trauma. There's a collective trauma. There's a collective grief that's happening. Mm -hmm. And I think, I just think that the, there are so many different definitions of that. And that means different things to different people. That means something very different to me as a licensed clinical social worker, just mm-hmm. as it probably means something different to you as a physician, especially in an ER. What advice do you have for listeners who are struggling with their own trauma during this pandemic? Mm. Well, I think of a few things. I'm going to go with my gut here because there are a few mm-hmm. things that come to mind. One is 
it's okay to say no to things. And especially it's okay to say no to things that you may want to say yes to. That's something that I have learned. I've had to learn how to do that over the years. Mm. Seek help. And, and if that is help from a friend or a colleague, if that is reaching out to someone for just community and conversation, or if that means like seeking like professional help. I think the, I don't know what the, the statistics are, but I think the number of individuals who have have either increased their frequency of therapy or have sought out therapy for the first time with a professional has increased like exponentially. And I think there's something very powerful about that. And a lot of therapists are in therapy themselves. I mean, it's mm. one of the ways that they may help maintain their practice and work through some of their own, maybe like vicarious trauma from the types of things that they hear. Mm. I, 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 I cannot overemphasize enough just tuning into yourself and mm. knowing what is okay and what isn't and allowing the the time, the space to actually process that. Sometimes you can do that well on your own. Sometimes you can mm. do that well with a, a friend or a spouse or a family member, but sometimes it's best reserved for a, for a working professional who really is is very like keenly trained in, in processing those kinds of things. Yeah. I love that point. Are there some practices that you've seen that have worked for getting more in tune to yourself? Because I would like to know, because you usually flying at a thousand miles per hour yeah. before the pandemic is to travel at least once a week somewhere away a lot. And this pandemic, one silver lining has been, I've had to slow down and that gave me some time to get more in tune with myself. Yeah, I I mean there there are so there there's some tried and true things that that I think many many professionals would would recommend. For me, I really think it comes down to, and I think for a lot of people too, I think it comes down to a a combination of things. It's no like one one solid thing. I think the the I mentioned like the art of saying no. I think one of the one of the things that I see often within social work is this talk about you know practicing self care, practicing self care. It's even talked about even quite a bit in just the educational training that students get. But no one really says like, what does that actually mean? Probably the best advice that I saw was was this phrasing, self-care is actually saying no and having a firm boundary with that. And I think that is, it's much easier said than done. These are things that are very hard practices to to get ingrained, to get into a rhythm of doing. I, I have found that being easy on yourself is actually uh, probably one of the most generous things that we can do is to, is to not beat ourselves up emotionally. The world is harsh enough. Like why, you know, why would we like welcome that upon ourselves? But I, I think some of the things that really help me are they're they're sort of simple things. It's like waking up early. So I actually have some time to just literally be quiet and still and not just take in whatever like the sounds are in my house, as opposed to all of the other distractions that are going to like unfold throughout the day. I think taking time to actually like read a tangible book, I think because I haven't had to go onto campus all that often, except to actually go get my COVID test. I've replaced that my, my parking money with just buying all kinds of like 
tangible hardcover books and just appreciating the things that I have. Gratitude is something that I have gone through waves of practicing much better than others. But I think I I know of those who just wake up and the first thing that they do is that they don't grab their phone. They actually just take time to to wake up and to be still and to just write. So it could just be even free writing. What you re- actually like reflective practice. It's something that we don't talk enough about in human-centered design is like the art of like reflective practice. I think about those non-tangible things that where you don't need, you don't need to buy something. You don't need to like, like, or like subscribe to something. Like so many of these tools we have at our disposal, but we just might not realize that we have those within us. I feel like this is a therapy session for me because everything that you've been saying so rings true. I think practically of how I can design a better day for myself during Mm. this pandemic and what are those constraints that I can put in my life and, and thinking about designing my day because I, a lot of times our days seem like they're out of control, but we can put some control on it. And I have such a hard time saying no. And during this pandemic, I've had to learn how to say no. And I love that comment that you made that uh, the power to say no is self-care. And it's been self-care for me. And even self-care, I feel uncomfortable with because I beat myself up. Maybe it's um, just this product of toxic masculinity, but I think of self-care as a sign of weakness of like, I don't think that, but I think subconsciously I do. And I beat myself up every day of like, I need to work or I need to do more. And I don't think of, I think of self-care as this fluffy thing. Oh yeah. Yeah. Like, do you see that common in, in dumb dudes like me? <laughs> no, I, I think, you know, I mean, I, the, out of all the things that you just said, Bond, the thing that really like struck me was I have a hard time saying no. And there's a reason for that. I have a hard time saying no as well. And there's a reason. And, and there's not just one reason. There, there are several reasons. I mean, you want to do good and you want to help others. And there's lots of opportunity. It's, there, there's a lot of things that are really hard to say no to because you you want to be involved. You want to be able to contribute. That you have some skill sets and some wherewithal to actually be positively contributing to something too. So there's there's all kinds of motivations that come from that. I get you know like dumb dudes like me. Um, <laughs> <laughs> you're not a dumb dude, first of all. I mean, <laughs> you're not. And I know you weren't like setting me up to like tell for me to say like you're not dumb. But I. <laughs> I feel like since since we've been living through the pandemic, there's been a certain kind of slowness that has been forced upon all of us. Mm-hmm. Then there has been, for those of us who are still able to either, uh, we work a job where we have to go in. You can't really, yeah. you can do some aspects of your job probably from home, but you can't, there are certain ones like you and my husband, Steve, you have to go to the hospital in order to do your job. And and for me, though, that's been sort of therapeutic because that's been the most normal part of my life. Yep. And I think it's sometimes it's easier for me to work in the emergency room than 
staying at home in this virtual environment, getting work done without being part of a team. It makes mm. us too present. This is, I think, my second time like being on my computer in the past at least what week and a half, and it feels it feels good and it feels it feels like restorative in some ways. But I'm not looking forward to going back to six seven hours a day on Zoom. It's draining. It it physically impacts me. Like my eyes are literally fried. It's so physically draining. I can't do it. And I've learned how to, I've been just saying no to a lot of these Zoom meetings or transferring over to phone calls. And I see my kids in Zoom all day long. I just, I don't know how they can do it. It is physically, mentally so exhausting for me. And I think about the role of design in our everyday lives. Design helps us to recognize patterns. Mm. And I think... It helps me to understand these patterns of these micro and macro trauma in my life and other people's life and to connect those dots. And I think we can practically design better lives for ourselves during this pandemic because they're, they're, we do recognize the trauma. But as you were saying, how do we implement like I don't think we do a great job at implementing interventions. Mm. And so I think we could think more on that and so much good stuff to say. I, one other kind of like last question I had, you are the associate director of programs at the Sybil center for design at the university of Illinois. What happens at that center? It sounds so cool. Oh yeah. <laughs> well, we, we do a lot of human centered design projects. We also teach classes that we've created that are open to most of the courses that we've created are open to any student on campus. In my role, I work really closely with faculty and staff and students on finding ways to like integrate human-centered design principles and practices in the classroom. And so one of the things that I get to do, because I like to say that I, I get to do it. It's not stuff that I have to do. It's stuff that I really, that I get to do. I teach a class on design thinking for social impact. And, and I see such amazing opportunities and to, to work with faculty and staff and students on, on, having them explore what these concepts and ideas and these methods of human-centered design, like what, what do those mean in, in a chemistry class or uh, a class on social impact? I worked with a team who rolls out and teaches like thousands of students, like the basic competencies for rhetoric. It was like, mm. how can we teach, how can we teach this class with a human-centered mindset? And how can we maybe deliver or like integrate some, con- some, some nuances of human and centeredness and and the design element within that. So so yeah, it's a it's it's a, a pretty remarkable endeavor. And it's our the center is named after Tom Siebel, who was a, a three-time alum of the University of Illinois. And he, he he got three separate degrees over a span of time and he felt that there needed to be something that was for all students on campus that really brought them together in a multidisciplinary way. And and so it's Oh, for me, I I think I'm not 100% certain on this, but I think I'm the first social worker in a design center to mm. to be able to 
play out and help implement some of these different initiatives and things that we're doing. But we have a, a big, beautiful building that is expected to be done here actually in the next couple of weeks. So the pandemic oh, delayed wow. it. Yeah. Wow. So yeah, you'll have to come back to the Midwest yeah. and visit it. As, as a Midwesterner, I want to go back to my roots. So I would love to. Yes, that would be amazing. It would be great to have you. Well, Rachel Dikas, thank you for joining us on Design Lab. I learned so much from you. Uh, thank you so much, Bon. I learned so much from you too. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Rachel Dikas. You can find her on Twitter or on Instagram at Social Workers Who Design. Now I'm joined by the producer of Design Lab, Rob Gleesey. What's up, Rob? Hey, Bond. What's going on? Who do we have on for next week? So next week, we're joined by Cliff Kwong. He's a user experience designer at Google and the author of the book, User Friendly. How the oh, hidden I rules... love Cliff. Can't wait. <laughs> <laughs> Tell me about his background, man. Tell the <laughs> listening audience about his background. Oh, man. So he wrote a book called User Friendly. How the One of my favorite of... design books ever. <laughs> he designed it with Robert Fabricant. I know him. They're both studs. Stop it. <laughs> the book is called User Friendly, How the Hidden Rules of Design Are Changing the Way We Live, Work, and Play. It Did you read a, that book yet, man? I have not read it yet. I Mon, told I, you for can, months to read that book. It's can I so borrow, good. Can I borrow your copy, please? No, you, you should buy your own. But Fine. there's this great chapter on Three Mile Island and how bad design almost led to the worst nuclear meltdown in history. So gripping. That sounds really cool. I can't wait to pick it up and give it a read. You should buy it too to the listening audience. It's so good. Thank you for joining us for this episode of Design Lab. I'm your host, Bon Ku. Rob Pugisi produced this episode. Our theme music was created by Emmanuel Houston and the cover design by Eden Liu. The best way to support us is by subscribing, rating, and reviewing this podcast. And reach out to us. We're always looking for feedback. You can DM me on Twitter at Bonku or Instagram at drbonku or drop me an email, bon at designlabpod.com. See you next week.